I wanted to just continue on, uh, but that's one of the disadvantages of uh, teaching in this setting as opposed to the Bible school where I could have just, I mean, downstairs where I have two, two hours plus, if need be, to continue on with something. But, but that's okay. You know, the Lord can work in the time, the limited time that we have. Now, let's go back to Hebrews. Uh, what chapters did you read this week? Thank you. <laughs> yes, I wanted you to read 9 and 10. Now, I want to just go to one verse here. The last verse in chapter 8, just to begin. In that he saith, a new covenant he hath made, the first old. Now that which is which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now, he's talking about the Old Covenant, and we're going to look at uh, something here in the beginning. But remember that the Old Covenant, and he's talking about also the, um, the tabernacle. When he says the sanctuary or tabernacle, they're referring to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Now, The items, if you'll remember this, uh, we'll look at this in a few minutes, but you had the Ark of the Covenant, uh, which was actually in the Holy of Holies. But does anyone remember the items inside the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments was one, yes. Aaron's rod that budded. And the urn full of manna. Now, I thought this was interesting because he says here that the, the New Covenant, and they're talking about the old decaying and passing away. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 8. Now, the, the chapters prior to this in Kings, you have uh, the work and building of Solomon's temple. And then you have the dedication of Solomon's temple in in chapter um, 8. But there's an interesting thing here. Remember, the three items were in the ark. In verse 9, when they bring the ark of the covenant now to Solomon's temple, it says, there was nothing in the ark save or except the two tables of stone <clears throat> which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they come out of the land of Egypt. So at this particular time, you had Aaron's rod that budded and the urn full of manna missing. They were gone. And possibly, probably, when the Philistines took the ark That's probably when they went missing. But the interesting thing was that even back then, there was a change and there were things that were missing and starting to decay, like the the writer says here to Hebrews. But they never saw that. And even when Jesus came and the dispersal of all that that they had later, was gone, they still, the Jews never saw the change that was taking place. 
But I thought that was very interesting. Now let's go back to chapter 9 in Hebrews. Now as you go through the book of Hebrews, if we would sit down and read it from chapter 1 through 13, we would see that the writer seems to be repeating things as he goes. And when I came to this, I'm thinking, why is he even talking about the tabernacle again? I mean, he, he makes mention of that in, in several places, but here he talks about it again. Remember that the writer has been establishing that the second covenant is far superior to the first. And so he continues with his reasons why. And in chapter 9, verses 2 through 5, deals with, with the uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances or ceremonies of divine service and a worldly or an earthly sanctuary. For there was the table made, the first therein was the candlestick and the table uh, and the show of bread, which is called the sanctuary or, or the holy, it's meaning, that means holy, holy place. And after the second, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, the holy, holy of holies, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot uh, uh, that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the, mer the mercy seat of which we cannot speak particular. So he's saying he's not going to go into detail. Now, why would the, the writer now talk about this, but not really talk about it in detail? He's mentioning it. To, you have to understand he's talking to Hebrew Christians. And he's bringing out here the beauty of the tabernacle. Now, I remember, well, what was it now? About seven years ago, Linda and I went over to Germany. And while we were over there, we went to this castle called Neuschwanstein. I don't know if you, anybody ever been there? You have? That's the castle that Disney patterned their castle after. When I went in that castle, I was not prepared for what I saw. Of any structure building I've ever seen, I have never, ever seen anything that remotely came close to the beauty and the, the ornateness of that castle. It was just amazing, amazing. The, the um, room, the king's um, bedchamber, had a carved wooden canopy that took four wood car carvers two years to carve. The castle itself had 200 workers, took them 17 years working seven, hour, uh, seven days a week, you know, from uh, dusk to dawn to build this. And we went into the one area was the throne room. And you know how you have um, ceramic tile and how we do it here with the grout. The ceramic tile was placed on the floor in, in, in pieces. But the way they did it, it looked like one solid, 
picture. And you had all these columns uh, stretching up to a second floor with, where there were balconies and all this stuff that they did. And they had this chandelier, this golden chandelier inset. Now, I'm doing this by memory now. Inset with all these different gems, colored gems. And I looked at that, and, and I, I was just taken back at the beauty of it, this man-made structure. Unbelievable. And unless you, you see that, you would never believe it. There's nothing in this country anywhere that comes close to the beauty of that castle. So now, let's take that thought. The, the tabernacle in the wilderness had a beauty to it that is lost on us. We have never seen it. We have seen pictures. We have a description. But actually, physically seeing it, see, that is lost upon us. We don't come out like they did out of their tents and, and, and see the, the outer court, the curtains, and see the court, outer court, the courtyard there, and the structure of the holy place, and seeing the pillar of cloud. And at night, whenever they had their, their, their lamps lit in their tents, they would come out and they would see this pillar of light, pillar of fire above that. A beauty that is lost on us. Picture the priests. Okay, here's the, the, um, the curtain, if you will, for the outer court. And they, they walk through that, and the first thing you see there is the brazen altar overlaid in gold. How many have ever seen anything that big overlaid in gold? We make a big deal with a little gold pendant, you know, this little, little thing, it's gold. This was overlaid in gold. And you look past that and you walk down further, you see the laver where the priest washed gold. Then you go past that, you come to the first veil or the curtain, and you go into the holy place. And in the holy place, you had uh, the, the golden candlestick. That's the seven-branched candlestick that was lit all night long perpetually that was fed by pure olive oil, casting forth its light. Then you had this table, the golden table, with 12, um, not loaves, but um, whatever, <laughs> pieces of, of um, cakes. That's what the Bible says, cakes. 12 cakes lined up on there. Then you have the altar of incense where the priest would go and light the incense and, and the incense would permeate, fill the, the holy place and begin to penetrate the veil into the holy of holies. And then you had the, the high priest who would go over and go through the veil and, and just the veil itself, multicolored, it's three colors, it had 
uh, cherubims sewn into it. They would go past that, the high priest, and go into the Holy of Holies where you had the Ark of the Covenant overlaid and inlaid with gold, covered on the outside and the inside. And you had the, the two golden cherubims over the mercy seat. And then you had what was inside there that all, all of this, all of it from, from the very beginning was showing forth the beauty of a tabernacle that was made with hands, made by man. Verse 5 of chapter 9. And over it the cherubim of, of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Another translation says this, Above the chest were the winged creatures, the symbols of God's glorious presence, or, or who reveal God's glory. So you have the first um, five verses here dealing with the beauty of the tabernacle, setting that forth so that the reader or, or the Hebrews, Christian Hebrews, could see and remember. See, they, they had a much better um, view of the beauty of the tabernacle than we do. So, so the writer sets that forth. The next thing is verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7 deals now with the annual Day of Atonement, where, uh, as it says back in Leviticus 16, uh, the high priest went in and performed his duty. He, he performed his duties in the first tabernacle. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. He's talking about the holy place, the first tabernacle. That's what he's, they're calling it. But into the second went the high priest alone, only once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. So you had the priestly duties performed here in the first tabernacle. Verse 8. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So there was, it says the word signify means the manifestation. God was manifesting himself even in that showing that that was not it, if you understand He's going to testify that the way into the holiest is not yet made possible. Even though you have the earthly beauty there, even though you have the high priest who goes in and does the sacrifices, doing everything according to the law, still that signified something else, another way, another covenant another uh, thing of beauty that God is going to uh, reveal. So that when you look at the wilderness tabernacle, one of the things that it shows us is 
man's approach to God. That's what's, what he's laying out from, from the very first, when you first come in the outer court. <clears throat> this is all moving toward man's approach uh, to God. And the high priest, he approached the presence of God in the earthly tabernacle. He was the one that actually went in where the mercy seat was in, in verse 9 and 10. And so God lays out, if you will, the laws of approach to him. And they have to go according to the laws of approach. And, and that, that's the way they came and moved down through that whole thing till they went into the holies, holy of holies. Now, when the writer presents Jesus as a, as a better approach to God, what he is doing is he's discouraging the Hebrew Christians from returning back to their old method of approach. And, and that is true always, because man in general always seems to move back toward the old. You know, God gives us a, a new nature, but yet there's always this thing that wants to move back to the old. You know, always. The temptation here for the, for the Christian Hebrews was to move back right into the, the old way of approach, back to the sacrifices and mingling that into uh, their, their Christianity. And so the writer brings that up. Now, remember that the earthly tabernacle was only a shadow of that which was going to come, or that which is. Now look in chapter 10, verse 1. For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. So he's bringing this point back again. That the law here, all of that was just the shadow and not the very image. The, the, the um, bent of them was to stay in the shadow of it, and that would be it. But he says it's, it's not the very image of the things. Um, they can never, uh, with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually make the comers unto perfect. There was no completeness in that. There was no complete sacrifice for sin because they had to do that every year. The high priest every year had to go in. So it, that whole setup could not bring them to this place of completion where there would be one sacrifice for all, for all time. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So you have the shadow and you have the image. The shadow was the old tabernacle, but what is the image? 
what is it that's casting this shadow? Now, I'll tell you. Most people believe that there is a physical structure in heaven that is the tabernacle. Personally, I don't believe that. In John, it says, in my father's house are many mansions. And so right away, people take the word mansion, and they think that there's a big mansion there. And if you look at that word and you study that word, you will see it's not talking about a physical structure at all. Now, if a person wants to believe it, that's okay. I mean, it's no big deal. But there is an image that's casting this shadow, and I don't believe it's a physical structure in heaven. Turn to Revelation chapter 4. You know, I don't want to get ahead of myself here. Let's just read this first. I want to read it first out of the King James, and then I want to go to the Amplified. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven. Remember, Jesus performed his sacrifice, so to speak, of himself in heaven and was set down at the right hand of of, uh, the Father, as we just read in Hebrews 10, 12. And it was a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Verse 5, And out of the throne proceeded lightning and thundering and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So, so he's describing the best he can what he's seeing. And he's talking about the throne and the immediate vicinity surrounding the throne. Now, I don't believe that there is a structure there. I don't think there's going to be anything obstructing the view of God. That's that's what I believe. After this, I looked, and lo, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard addressed to me like the calling of a war trumpet, said, Come up hither, I will show you what must take place in the future. At once I came under the Holy Spirit's power, and lo, a throne stood in the heaven with one seated on the throne. And he, and he who sat there appeared like the, the crystalline brightness of jasper and the fiery star, sardis. And encircling the throne, there was a halo that looked like a, a rainbow of emerald. Now, now, John is trying to describe with words what he's seeing, and I believe it's impossible to describe the throne of God with words. But nevertheless, he's describing that to the best he can, 
and, and we can, can glean something from that. Out from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne, seven blazing torches burning, which are the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold Holy Spirit. And in front of the throne, there is also what looks like a transparent glassy sea as if of crystal. In Revelation 21, I believe it is, angel speaks to John and says, Come, I'm going to show you the bride, the lamb's wife. Then immediately, he, he, in the next verse, he is taken and he is shown the new Jerusalem. So is he, is he showing John the lamb's wife, the bride, or is he showing him new Jerusalem? Well, I believe they're one and the same. New Jerusalem, people think it's going to be a literal thing. Physical, brick-and-mortar structure. But if you read that careful, very carefully, what he's describing there is, in words, he's trying to paint this picture of what the lamb's wife looks like. Not some physical structure. Now, there, there may be some physical structure down here on earth. But the image that's casting the shadow of the tabernacle is something different, is something more than a physical structure. It is, I believe, related to what you see at the throne. Jesus sitting down at the right hand after he had made sacrifice. I don't believe in a physical building. No, I hope it's that I'm not upsetting anybody by saying that. If you want to believe there's a physical building, that's fine. It's really, it's not anything that can be really proven in Scripture. That, that's what I see. So the beauty of the, the uh, earthly tabernacle just the beauty of that is, reflect, is, is a reflection of the beauty that is there in heaven round about the throne in the person, I believe, of Jesus Christ. Go back to Hebrews 9. I'm going to read this from the Amplified, uh, verse 24. Let, let's read it. I'll read it from the King James in a minute. For Christ, the Messiah, has entered into the sanctuary made with... Uh, wait a minute here. Not, he has not entered into a sanctuary made with human hands. And he's talking about the, the, um, the physical sanctuary on earth, only a, which is only a copy and a pattern and a type of the true. But he has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the very presence of God on our behalf. Now, in the King James, it says this, For Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true. Now, the word true there, if you do a study of that, you will see that that word is used in the New Testament referring to many different things. Um, the true riches, the true bread, the true light, uh, the true God, 
the true witness, it's never used referring to a structure. It's not, that, that's not the usage, it's, it's of the true. And he doesn't say here, which are figures of a heavenly building. He says, which are figures or copies or whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, a shadow of the true. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So, so there seems to me to be much more going on with this than uh, appears on the surface. He tries to, to uh, through the description of the earthly tabernacle and its beauty, he's, he's trying to compare that to what Jesus did, the beauty there at the throne when Jesus sacrificed and sat down. But, I mean, how can you? How can you see the two? They're, they're both, both of them, really. It's very difficult to understand and perceive the beauty of the earthly tabernacle and what Jesus did. We, we can experience that in here. But the actual uh, reality of what is there at the throne of God is beyond us, beyond us. But we have hope. We have hope. And someday, we will, I believe, to some degree, see what is described here in Hebrews. Now let's go to chapter 10. So he's still talking about the old and, and the new covenant now that, that's, that's going to be brought in through Christ or has been brought in. Verse 20. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Turn to Matthew 27. Remember the the veil in, in the earthly tabernacle uh, was a thing of beauty. Did anybody ever see the veil, I mean, uh, the, of the Israelites? Did any Israelites ever see it, do you know, you think? The veil, they say, and, and I, I don't know for sure, but they say it was four inches thick. It, it's made of three colors, um, purple, blue, and scarlet with the, the cherubims on the front of it. It says in Numbers, and I, I saw this this morning when I was reading, that whenever they would move the tabernacle in the wilderness, which I didn't know this, that the priests would take the veil, and I guess they would, they would, would take it and hold it and walk it back and lay it over the, the ark. So when they transported it, it seems to me that the veil was, was upon the ark. You couldn't see the ark, but they could see the veil. And I believe the veil was very beautiful also, woven with these colors. In Matthew 27, verse 50, 
Jesus, when he, excuse me, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Once again, you know, the Jews didn't get this. They, they still stayed in the old, move, moving in the traditions and all of that. And an interesting thing in that verse, it's not the veil was rent from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. Because I believe that God just took the thing and ripped it. And in Hebrews, the verse we just read, verse 20, by a new and living way which, ha- which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, Jesus' flesh, his natural body was rent for us on the cross. Opening the way now into the holies of holies. Before limited to only the high priest. No one ever saw what was in there other than the high priest of Israel. The presence of God, the approach only made there by the high priest for the people. But now the veil is rent in two, signifying that the way into the Holy of Holies would now be opened unto everyone. Verse 9, chapter 10. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, meaning Jesus, that he may establish the second. You know, in the holy place that you had the table of showbread, Do you know what that was called? It was called the table of presence. And the ephah that the priest wore was called the robe of approach. But now all that, that pointed to the new, that which pointed to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, has been done away with. And now there's a new and living way in which we can approach to God. Turn to Hebrews 4. Because of what Jesus has done. And, and you know, we, we miss certain things. Because we did not live under that type of a system where only a few had access to the holy place and only the high priest had access to the holy of holies. Because we don't live under that, the impact of what God has done for us sometimes eludes us. Now we, all of us, have access to the Father through Christ. In Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly or openly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let me read that from the NIV. I'm going to read from two other translations. 
I like how the NIV says this because it fits right in with uh, what you see, the, the approach to God through the Levitical system. And now you see a different approach. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. See, let us approach. This is a new approach through Christ. Uh, another translation says, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. Very nice. That we can obtain mercy for sin and grace to help. Let me see how they, they have it for that verse. There we will receive His mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I love that. And then there's this grace that's even past that. All of it accessible to us as Christians personally. We can go to God through Christ. We don't need a Levitical priest. We don't have to wait once a year for someone to go before uh, the Father with our sin. We can take our sin, confess our sin to Him. We can go to Him when we have need. We can go to Him in praise and thanksgiving. We have access to the God of the universe now through Jesus Christ. That is a tremendous thing in which he did. Now, just turn to Hebrews 13. Just for a second. We have a couple more scriptures, then we're going to close. Hebrews 13, verse 10. The writer says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. He says, we have an altar that we can go to now that those who are in the Levitical system cannot approach to or they cannot move into the altar that we have. They have no right to, see, because they can't eat from that, the mercy and the grace. Because they have not come God's way through Christ now. So things have, things have changed. Turn to James. Two scriptures. Chapter 4. Draw nigh to God. Well, see, we can do that now because the way is open to us. We have available to us as Christians what they did not have in the Old Testament. And the, the, the thing that's really bad about it is that a lot of Christians do not take advantage of what we have now today. Draw nigh to God. See, you can do that. I can do that. You know, that, that's, that's the heart condition. Having a heart that says, okay, Lord, you know, I, I want to draw closer to you. I mean, you may not even say the words with your lips, but it, it's in your heart that, Lord, you know, whatever it takes, whatever needs to, to happen, you know, however you want to work things out for me in my life personally, 
allow me to draw near to you with my heart. You know, you know, whether this is going on or that's going on or nothing's going on. Whether we're in favorable circumstances or in unfavorable circumstances. See, the heart can remain in that mode of, Lord, I want to draw near to you. See? Well, draw near to God and, what's it say? He will draw near to you. And if you read the rest of the verse, cleanse your hands, ye sinner, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Those two words, cleanse and purify, are Levitical terms taken from Leviticus, you see. They're a little different. Cleanse your hands, speaking of, you know, your, your hearts, and purify your hearts. It's just something different, but still, the words are taken from Leviticus. Draw near to God. If you have a heart that draws near to God, and you want him. Well, you know, I believe he'll draw near to you in some way. Back in Hebrews 10, and we'll close with this verse. Verse 22. The writer says here, let us draw near. Now, I didn't think about this till just a second. Uh, that there is probably that phrase is subjunctive mood, I would think. Just by the way it's stated there. I mean, I don't know for sure, but what that means is <clears throat> that the possibility exists that we will draw near. See, it's not God that has gone on a vacation, so to speak. It's not God that has, you know, gone away. Let us draw near. Sometimes it's us. You know, in our heart, we don't maintain that heart before God where, okay, Lord, you know, I'm here, and I do want more of you. I want, I want to draw near to you. You know, that is, I believe, to be in the heart of the Christian, you know, regardless of what's going on in, in your life. And as I say, sometimes there's nothing going on. And you're just kind of there, if you understand. Have you ever felt that way? You know, it's like, there's really <laughs> nothing going on. You're just there. <laughs> okay? <clears throat> Be there with the heart that wants to draw an eye to God. So the... Um, the writer here says, let us, come on, let us draw near to God. And he goes on and says, with a true heart, or a, that means a genuine heart or a sincere heart. So see, that, that's a, a, a good thing to have. That's a necessary factor to really make some progress in the Lord. A sincere heart or a true or genuine heart. So let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our, our bodies washed with pure water. Now, see, there's two words in there that uh, are, if you will, Levitical terms, sprinkled and washed. Once again, that's, that's from Leviticus last semester. when We talked about the sprinkling of the blood 
and the washing uh, of purification. And let us hold fast our profession of faith. So, so what I want you to see today in this is that there was an approach in the old. And the beauty of the old covenant, the beauty of the tabernacle in the wilderness, was only a shadow of something new. Now, through Jesus Christ, we move into this new covenant, this new testament, where there is a greater beauty that we are to see and perceive here within us. That also is trickling down from the throne room to us. So that as you walk as a Christian, you should have a different view of that which is true or a different view of Christ now, today, than you did 10 years ago. And, and the increase of his government in your heart and life, the increase of that will not change. The increase of his government, how does that say that? No Shall be no end. So that what we know and see of the Lord now, of the truth, of His goodness, of His sacrifice, all of that, everything that He is, that we can perceive of. See, there will be an increase in our life the Lord will continue to put more and more and more into His people. There will be no end. And someday we will, we will see and experience the reality of the true. That, that, that um, was the shadow, that, that cast the shadow of the old in what has taken place there. So I want to encourage you today to draw nigh unto God. Because what we have, what is available to us as Christians today, is far better and far superior. Uh, as it says in, where is it? Oh yeah, in 8.6. A better covenant with better promises. It's far superior, where we can go today in God as a Christian is beyond what we think. And that's all available to you and I. The approach to the presence of God as it was in the tabernacle, that, that veil has been rent, and now we have an approach to God that has never been in the Old Testament with the Levitical system. We have that now, available to us now. May we avail ourselves what God has given us through Jesus.
Christ. Out of my belly, river shall flow. Rivers of living.